Good morning, friends. The story of Job is a well-known story. Um, we're familiar with the sufferings of Job. We have uh, statements about how when we suffer, we're suffering like Job and so forth and so on. So we know the, the story behind the, his sufferings. And it seems that it's a comfort to us because we also suffer. We face difficulty, trials, pain, hardship. Maybe not as severe as Job, but certainly severe enough. C.S. Lewis wrote this well-known statement. God whispers in our pleasures, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Pain and suffering are, in other words, according to Lewis, God's messengers to get our attention. So in your experience, how has God used pain to get your attention? You have some experiences there, I'm sure, if you've been alive for any length of time. So how long has pain and suffering been part of the human experience? How far back could we go and discover someone that didn't? Well, humans have struggled with pain and suffering ever since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, right? That's when the curse was introduced into the human race. And with the curse came all these things that created pain, suffering, sorrow, hardship. With all that curse came all that suffering. So before the fall, there was no suffering, no pain, no death. After the fall, something new showed up. Pain, suffering, sorrow, death. And by the time we get to the 21st century, having seen all this take place before us in human history, having a, an accurate, a godly theology that guides our thinking about suffering and pain is helpful, if not required, especially if we're going to go through these things that seem to be inevitable, pain, suffering, etc. Trying to navigate life's inevitable pain and hardship without a proper theology, I would say, is unwise. So how do we go about developing a theology of suffering that is accurate to Scripture and helpful to us? A complete theology of suffering, of course, would begin with the fall of man, but our parameters are a lot smaller than that. Um, and we of late have been zeroing in on the theology of the cross in Mark chapters 14 through 16. And you cannot consider a theology of the cross in these chapters without contemplating the reality of suffering. Central to the theology of the cross is the sufferings of Christ. In fact, we can't think about the theology of the cross without the sufferings of Christ coming into view which is good. So as we, as we consider this theology of the cross and, and, and are confronted with a theology of suffering, um, we need to think about what are the ramifications of Jesus' sufferings. Not, not just ramifications for our salvation, which we covered last week, but ramifications for our sanctification, which I hope to cover this week. So the things that Jesus endured in the Passion Week recorded in Mark 14 through 16 not only secure 
eternally secure our salvation, but those same sufferings discuss and secure our sanctification. And I want to show you how this works. If you remember, last week I, I told you that, that the sermon that I was beginning to preach last week was going to take two weeks. So this is the second half of the sermon. And I, I hope and pray that it'll be of some encouragement to you because I think every person that I know, especially the Christians that want to honor God, could use some guidance and help when it comes to having a proper theology of suffering. Because we all face it, and we all face those who face it. And so I think this is, I think, beneficial to us. Last week we looked at the suffering of Christ, what and why he suffered, our salvation. And we discussed that, the ramifications of that. This week we'll look closely at the suffering of his followers, you and me. What to expect and how to navigate it. How we, what to expect when we're confronted with these pains, sorrows, difficulties, and trials as it relates to our sanctification, and how to navigate it, and here's the kicker, with joy. How are we going to be joyful, as we're commanded to be, through our trials and suffering, right? Let's begin with this. If God is sovereign, then he is sovereign over suffering. So we can't say, I believe God is sovereign, except for... And as soon as you use that, then you don't believe in the sovereignty of God. He's sovereign except for, no, he's either sovereign or he's not. There's not. You can't split that up. So if God is sovereign, then he is sovereign over our suffering. Which means your suffering isn't bad luck or, or random events converging to make your life miserable. The problem is that most of the time we can't see the point of our suffering while we're in it. And when you can't see the point of something painful, it makes it more difficult to navigate and maintain a God-honoring attitude through it. We sang recently, I think about 10 minutes ago, what my God ordains is right. And I've intentionally asked Jeremy to lead us in that song over the past couple of weeks so that you would consider it, at least have it pass through your brain and hopefully through your heart, the truths of those song, of that song that we sang. The song says, and it's a biblical truth, even when we don't see God's objectives in our suffering, he has them. He is never caught off guard by our changing circumstances or the howling storms that come in each, in, into each of our lives. One of the biggest lessons that we can learn as Christ's true followers is to trust God in all things. I think that is a fundamental primary lesson for each and every Christian to learn, especially when times get difficult. To trust God is the question, do I trust him in this through which I'm going? If we're going to, it requires us to develop what I've called a theology of trust. Do you truly believe, based on your history, your experience, that God is good, that he's kind, he's faithful, loving, all-powerful? That's a theology of trust. I think that's what we must come to grips with, must embrace, if we're going to navigate the trials and pain and sorrow that each of us will face. 
So let's look at, let's look at um, the points that you see in your bulletin, different forms of suffering. And then we're going to move through the first three fairly quickly, so don't get too excited. Um, when we get to number four, it slows down. And that's where the rubber meets the road. Okay? But first, suffering without Christ. You know this. I don't have to say this, but I'm going to anyways. Every human being suffers, whether they know Jesus or not. <laughs> right? This is what Job says in chapter 14, verse 1. Man who is born of woman is few of days and full of trouble. Every man... Every woman, every child experiences the same things, suffering and pain. Doesn't matter if you know Christ or not. If you're human, you suffer, suffering without Christ. Secondly, suffering for Christ. The first reason Christians suffer for Christ is that the world hates authentic Christians. And I want you to follow me here because some of you may disagree with some of the things I'm gonna say, but I'm gonna to try to back them up with scripture. Why do I say that Christians suffer, first of all, because the world hates authentic Christians? It's because authentic Christians are not like the world. That's why. This means that a genuine believer will be different than the average person in the world who doesn't know Christ. They will have different values, different interests, different viewpoints, different priorities, different relationships. And a genuine believer will genuinely, generally be swimming against the culture. This doesn't mean that every time you encounter a non-Christian, you're gonna have an argument or a fight, no. It just means that in a general sense, you're going Godward, they're going selfward. That's the difference. They, these authentic Christians will verbally, because of this reality, will verbally call people around them who don't follow Christ to repent of their sins and come to Jesus for healing, salvation, and growth. Or that same genuine, authentic Christian will have a life that is holy, and that word means separate from the world, which makes other people uncomfortable. The minute that people recognize the difference in your life from theirs, it creates an uncomfortable environment. Your holiness shines a light on their unholiness, and everybody who's, who experiences that uh, has a negative reaction to it. This is the stance that causes so much animosity against Christians. Holiness does not produce friendship. <laughs> Holiness in the world produces en en enemies and enmity. Jesus said this in John 3, that unsaved people prefer darkness rather than light. And what does Jesus call us? Children of the light, right? We're, we're of the light. When, when light comes into a dark room, it shines into all the dark corners, exposing all the things that are unhealthy and not good. And the sinner sees that and reacts negatively most of the time. This is what exactly happened to Jesus. The world hated him because he stood for the right, the light, and exposed the darkness. Hence, they hated him. And Jesus said in John 15, 8, that we should expect the same treatment if we stand for him and with him. It's a predictable reaction. You, you want to be like Jesus? Well, this is how the world treated him. It's going to treat you the same way. Shouldn't be surprised by that. The second reason the world hates Christians is because the world hates Christ, which I just said, John 15, 20, to be specific. Remember the word that I said to you, Jesus said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. If they keep my word, they'll keep yours. So when we experience resistance, when we experience rejection or hatred, 
It's exactly because of what Jesus experienced. What's strange about going through this kind of experience as a Christian, authentic Christian, and being rejected and hated by the world, is it produces a very strange sense of joy. Like Peter and John, when they came out of the Sanhedrin, remember in, in Acts 4? What, they came out rejoicing because they saw themselves or found themselves worthy of the sufferings of Christ. The third reason <clears throat> believers suffer for Christ is because, Jesus said, because the world does not know God. They shine the light on darkness, they stand with Christ, and the world doesn't know God, which we do and love. Jesus said this, but all things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. The reason the world hates us is because they don't know God. They don't know his priorities. They don't care. Interestingly, many Christians think that they have dodged the bullet of persecution because they consider themselves friends with the world. And you need to keep in mind when, when I say enemies of the world, I'm referring to it in the biblical context. Uh, it, not that you have to go out and be mean to non-Christians. You go out and be Christ-like and you'll create enemies. So it's not like we're intentionally trying to be unfriendly to people. It's that their reaction to our holy pursuit of Christ is the issue. So when we, when we as, as Christians think that we've dodged this bullet of persecution, well, it's not happening to me. Um, I want to be friends with the world. Let me just ask you to consider the following verses. 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And I understand that the concept of world is, is greater than individual, like neighbors and coworkers that you know in your life. The world is a much broader uh, thing there. But James 4 also speaks concerning this. Verse 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? If, if you embrace the world and what it stands for, then you're doing the opposite of embracing God. Paul said to Timothy, indeed, in 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So what are we saying if we're not being persecuted? I'll let you answer that question. 1 Peter 4.12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Get used to it, Peter and Paul and Jesus are saying. Now let's look at suffering because of Christ. Now there's a nuanced difference here, suffering for Christ and suffering because of Christ. And I want you to hear as I explain it. Follow me. God has a particular relationship with his people that he doesn't have with the rest of the world. If you're a Christian, he has a particular relationship with you with a particular purpose that he does not have with the rest of the world. We, we heard read earlier from Psalm 34 that the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and against the evildoers. There's that particular relationship that God has with you if you're in his family. His eyes are on you, in favor of you, and not so with the rest of the world. It's like, I could, I could explain it to you like this. When's the last time you had success in disciplining your neighbor's children? I can't ever remember that happening. It's because they're not my kids. I'm worried about my kids. God's worried about his kids. God is, 
in, in interest, very concerned with a particular relationship with his children, you and me, not the rest of the world who have not embraced him. We read in Romans 8.29 that God's people are those he foreknew before the foundation of the world. Those people he has a particular interest in. Let me read you the verse. Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew, listen to what he's concerned with about those he foreknew. To, he also predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son. He didn't predestine the rest of the world to be conformed with, with the image of his son like you don't you or not, well, you shouldn't be, concerned with the discipline of your neighbor's children. See, God ordained suffering is part of the Christian life that accomplishes something by way of God's purposes for you. He has a peculiar relationship with you, a particular and divine interest in your development. William Grinnell who's one of my favorite Puritans, wrote this. And he's speaking about the, the armor of God in Ephesians 6. But I want you to pay attention about how he connects the idea of suffering in this quote. <clears throat> All the pieces of the armor of God are to defend the Christian from sin, none to secure him from suffering. They are to defend him, they are to defend him in suffering, not privilege him from it. He must prepare the more for suffering because he is so well furnished with armor to bear it. Armor is not given for men to wear by the fireside, but in the field. How shall the maker be praised if the metal of his arms be not known? And, what, and where shall it be put to the proof but amidst swords and bullets? He that desires to live all his days in a state of ease and security will never make a good Christian. Resolve for hardship or lay down thy arms. <laughs> I'd like to hear that sermon in full. I think it would be very instructive. The point, I think, is that we will suffer in our Christian lives, but God has supplied everything we need to sustain us in and through it. We, who are God's people, suffer as much or more than the rest of the world, but God has a particular purpose for your suffering. You are in his family. The Bible teaches us that God ordains, plans, prescribes the challenging circumstances of our lives and the purpose which they bring, and that is to shape us into the image and character of Jesus Christ. Now let's look at where the rubber meets the road. Uh, point number four, embracing our suffering. Here's where I want you to pay particular attention, especially if you're going through something now. And I, I should not make that qualifier because we all will eventually go through hard things. So drop that qualifier, pay attention, all right? This is gonna be really important to the success of your Christian life. Starting with Peter's command, 1 Peter 4.13, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. That's a command. Rejoice in sufferings. And that, that seems odd. Be happy when you face hardship, pain, sorrow, suffering. And when we say rejoice in our sufferings, we're not saying that we enjoy sufferings in themselves as if we're a masochist looking for things to hurt ourselves with. 
No, we, we rejoice in the results of our God's objectives in our suffering, the, the things that they will accomplish in us one day. We're also not saying that all suffering is God's will for believers. For example, 1 Peter 4.15, in the very same chapter, Peter writes that we should not suffer as a murderer, a thief, or a meddler. If you're meddling in someone else's life, you deserve to suffer. My dad told me once when I was in junior high, John, if you deserve to get hit, you should get hit in the face. All right? Don't make someone punch you in the face. Don't say stupid stuff. Keep your mouth shut on the playground. Don't do stupid things. And you'll avoid those kind of pains. So that's exactly what Peter's saying. If you deserve the suffering, don't blame God for it. This is what he's saying. So God can and does graciously use the pain and suffering caused by our own sin, but it's best not to place all that responsibility on God for suffering if it's based on or due to our sin or stupidity. You're not suffering for Jesus um, if you deserve a beating, right? So let's begin where the Bible does in order to understand pain and suffering. And I think this is probably the first line of thought. A.W. Pink helps us with this. He wrote this. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that God is God. The sovereignty of the God of Scripture is absolute, irresistible, and infinite. When we say that God is sovereign, we affirm his right to govern the universe which he has made for his own glory just as he pleases. We affirm that he is he that we affirm that his right is the right of the potter over the clay, viz. that he may mold that clay into whatsoever form he chooses, fashioning out of the same lump one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor. We affirm that he is under no rule or law outside of his own will and nature, that God is a law unto himself, and that he is under no obligation to give an account of his matters to any. We have to get that in our heads if we're going to understand suffering, if we're going to form a biblical theology of suffering. Pink continues, sovereignty characterizes the whole being of God. He is sovereign in all his attributes. He is sovereign in the exercise of his power. His power is exercised as he wills, when he wills, where he wills. This fact is evidenced on every page of scripture. For a long season, that power appears to be dormant, and then it goes forth with irresistible might. Pharaoh dared to hinder Israel from going forth to worship Jehovah in the wilderness. And what happened? God exercised his power. And so as we, as we begin to develop a theology of suffering, it must begin with this point. God is sovereign. God is God, and we are not. We may intellectually believe the doctrine of God's sovereignty, but until we are faced with real life trials, our beliefs are nothing more than untested intellectual assent. Unfortunately, intellectual assent doesn't really count for much. So, to test the validity of your doctrinal commitments, God allows even direct suffering into your life as his people. Now, you, you can probably guess where this is going. How did you do the last time you faced difficulty? 
How'd you perform as one of God's people? Were you spiritually stable or did you question God's love and wisdom or right to do what he has done in your life? Were you on shaky ground theologically? Were you an example to those of younger faith who were watching you or did you, did you bring into question a life of faith? Is it worth it? So how strong is your faith? And here's the biblical answer. You'll never know until you're tested. Genesis 22 describes one of the most severe tests of faith ever recorded. So if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 22. Genesis chapter 22. I want to read for you this hard-to-describe test of faith, hard to imagine. It's well-known. Listen to it. After these things, God tested Abraham. There's the word, tested. God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Can you imagine this test of faith? God promised about 35 years before this, this particular son. This is the promised Isaac. This is the one that was to come. This is the one he and Sarah were waiting for. Now, when he becomes a young teenager, the one who promised, the one who gave this son, tells you to go sacrifice him as a burnt offering. You can imagine, maybe you can't, I can't, the angst that this would produce. Now, <laughs> Abraham's struggle isn't recorded, but we can certainly imagine that he struggled with his command. For starters, the God of Abraham was not the God of the other locals. Their God was the God of Moloch, of whom we heard this kind of command all the time, go sacrifice your children to appease me in my anger and all these things. Go sacrifice your kids, throw your kids into the volcano, drown them, whatever. I want one of your kids. That was coming from Moloch, the pagan God, not Jehovah, not Abraham's God. So you can imagine he's like, Where's this coming from? What? Abraham knew the true God. This didn't make sense. But Abraham's response is even more baffling. Look at verses 3 through 8 here in Genesis chapter 22. As if he didn't hear anything severe, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkeys, took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place God had told him. All right. You know, what? <laughs> on the third day, having this on his mind, this is why we have the time frame here, having this whole thing he's wrestling with for the entire three days, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, 
You see the parallels with Christ? Pay attention for something else here. That's a different sermon. We've already preached it. <clears throat> and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son as he walked up the same hill, Calvary, Mount Moriah. All right. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they both went them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went of them. They both went together. This is stunning. This is an amazing test of faith. Um, by the way, <clears throat> whenever we come across God tested, God tested, God tested, whenever you hear God will test your faith, it's not for God's benefit, right? He already knows. He knows Abraham's response. He knows the Israelites' response. He knows Job's response. He knows your response. The test of faith is for us, the recipients of the test. Is my faith what I claim it to be? Is my faith real? Am I a genuine follower of Christ? That's the question. That's the test. There are many things to learn here, though, from Abraham's story, but I want you to see this, that when we suffer trials and hardship, whatever, whatever they may be, there are reasons, good biblical God-honoring reasons, to embrace the suffering. That's what I want you to see here. And that's how we're going to develop a theology of trust, a theology of suffering, really a theology of the cross. So let's look at how um, sufferings, trials, and hardships can be embraced honestly with joy. First is this, they teach us to trust God. Trials, hardships, and pain teach us to trust God. What else is going to do that for you? Do you want to learn how to trust your Creator? You want to learn how to trust God and follow Him wholeheartedly? That would be good, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, guess how He's going to do it? Through hardship, trial, pain, and suffering. We can actually joyfully navigate pain and suffering when we wholeheartedly trust the God of those pains, sorrows, and suffering. 1 Peter 4.19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Keep doing good, keep doing what you're commanded, and trust God with all these things. Jerry Bridges, in his great book, I'd recommend it, Trusting God, he quoted Horatius Bonner, who was a 19th century pastor and hymn writer. Uh, Horatius Bonner wrote the book, When God's Children Suffer. So Bridges, who is a contemporary, was quoting Bonner. That's where this quote's gotten from. It's coming from the pen of Horatius Bonner. Here's what he said. He who is carrying it on is not one who can be baffled and forced to give up his design. Who's carrying it on? Who's carrying on your trials, your hardship, and your pain? It's God. Bonner is saying, you can't buffalo God. All right? He who is carrying it on is not one who can be baffled and forced to give up his design. No. He is able to carry it out in the unlikeliest circumstances and against the most resolute resistance. You think you can hold out? <laughs> think again. Everything must give way before him. This thought is to me one of the most comforting 
connected with the discipline. If God could be frustrated in his designs after we have suffered so much, it would be awful. For God to resign himself and say, well, this is a nut I just can't crack. Can you imagine that? No, that's what, that's what Bonner's saying here. But God's treatment must succeed. It cannot miscarry or be frustrated even in its most arduous efforts, even in reference to its minutest objects. It is the mighty power of God that is at work within and upon us. And this is our consolation. This is our encouragement that it's going to work. He who began a good work in you, what? Will complete it. All is love, all is wisdom, all is faithfulness, all is power. God is loving, wise, faithful, and has the power to pull it off. What a perspective. We need to embrace that. So, in the middle of a storm, it can be easy to take your eyes off Jesus like Peter did when he was walking on the Sea of Galilee. You can begin to think that God doesn't know or care or that he's too distant and too impersonal to address your concerns, measly me and my, as big as they might be to me, we're talking about the God of the universe. You're telling me he really cares? Yes. That's what the Bible's telling us. Job 42, verse 2. After everything Job went through, after all the back and forth, the hardships, pain that went on for 41 chapters, this is what Job acknowledges to God. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. The very next verse he says, I, I, I bow in repentance and, and cover myself in ash. He, he finally got to the place where he acknowledged, where he adopted a biblical theology of suffering. Secondly, pain and suffering identify idols. Another lesson to learn that isn't so comfortable, I may add, is to recognize that God may include those closest to us in our suffering and hardship. One thing I've learned is that any test of faith is usually associated with a particularly vulnerable area in my life. So if you're having a test of faith and it's difficult for you, it's probably because you need to be tested in that area. For Abraham, leading up to Genesis 22, he was on the verge of idolizing his son Isaac. Hence the test. Hence the lesson. For me, while I was in college, I was enamored idolizing sport. And so God dealt with it. The area in which I was most vulnerable, God dealt with. And later on, it was idolizing my wife, my children, my vocation. Check, check, check. God dealt with each. And as God continues his work in each of us, the idols evidently continue to crumble and, and fall away. Like Dagon, the false god of the Philistines. Remember that story? They captured the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, they captured it as enemies of Israel. And they took it into the temple of Dagon, which was this lizard god in statue form. 
And what happened to the lizard god when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the room? It fell. And the first night, it broke one of its arms off. The next day, they set it up, glued on the arm. Next night, they came in, and it fell, and both arms had broken off this lizard, this clay lizard. And then the next day, they came in, and it was shattered in front of the Ark of the Covenant. This is exactly what God does with our idols in our lives, whether they be sport, family, or vocation. Abraham's idol, Isaac, boom, gone. Yours, sport, entertainment, family, what have you. God's eliminating our idols with pain and suffering. That's how he does it. What you see is that the more difficult it is to maintain a joyful attitude through the trial, the more important it is that the test and trial be had. Luke 14.6, everybody's favorite verse, here it is, Luke 14.6, this is on all your refrigerators. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You all have that as your favorite verse, right? No. You do not, because it's almost offensive, isn't it? Jesus is identifying all the things that are, in fact, idols to each of us. Next, pain and suffering develops humility. Romans 12, 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, do not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think yourself in sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. You know why this is a command in Scripture? Because everybody has a problem with it. All of us think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And so the Holy Spirit informs the Apostle Paul to include in the application of the gospel the importance of not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. God highly values humility in all of us because it is his dominant character quality. Think of this. The creator of the universe is the most humble being in the universe. That's hard, that's hard to contemplate. In our human perspective, we think if you're, if you're really good at something, you ought to get credit for it, right? Man, that guy's good at basketball. Or wow, that guy's a great financial planner or whatever. You know, good bead collector. You know, we, we, wow, praise them for how good they are at these things. God is the creator of the universe and he's the most humble being in the universe. That's counterintuitive. But this is what, exactly what Philippians chapter 2 describes. Did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but lowered himself to the form of a servant, being humble and obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross the creator of the universe. God highly values humility and so he is going to make sure that his followers, his people, are humble. And how he does that? He sends trials, hardship, pain, suffering. Usually to the areas we're most confident with. Next, pain and, and suffering wean us from material things. Don't you know this? As we grow in our faith, we will become less interested in material things, I think. A simple test of the depth of your faith is to simply prioritize the things that make up your life. P put the top 10 things together and prioritize them. What are the top 
on your list? What's the top of that? It's amazing to watch people who are diagnosed with a life-threatening disease or experience some trauma, some event that's kind of earth-shattering. What do they all do? They prioritize their life. They re-prioritize their life. They, all of a sudden, family becomes important and work doesn't and so forth and so on. Even in the secular arena, this is true. Suffering always reveals the importance or lack thereof of material things. We, we know that, that material things don't satisfy our deepest needs, but we keep pursuing them. So when God does take us through any kind of suffering, we quickly learn that he is the answer to life's questions, that he is the source of fulfillment and not the things of this world. This is one of God's primary objectives in sending trials our way. He desires to remove things from our lives that get between us and him. This is, this is God's work. This is how the author of Hebrews says it, Hebrews 12.1 from the NIV. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us. I want to point out one thing here. He separates the ideas of things that hinder and sin, which means they're not the same thing. Sin hinders, certainly, but there are things that are not sin that also hinder. Things like his good gifts to us, like family, like employment, like health, like strength, like food. All these things are what the author of Hebrews is referring to. Sin is obvious. That certainly distracts you, entangles you up in your relationship with God. But guess what else does? All these good things. So let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles so that we can run with perseverance, so that we can grow deep in Christ, and a great model of this, of course, is Moses. You know the story of Moses and from Hebrews 11. Here's what the author says there. By faith, Moses, when he, has, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, which he was, by the way, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for the reward. Now. To add some context here concerning Moses, he wasn't just some poor Israelite slave that didn't have any options anyways, right? Like the guys on death row. No. Moses was the prince of Egypt. He had the best education available. He had material resources that only most people can dream about. He was at the top of society. He had everything anybody at any time wanted. And he said, no, thank you. This is what trials and hardship and pain do for us. They wean us from the world. Next, they prepare us for heaven. What I've discovered uh, as I've grown older is it seems that the people who are most interested in heaven are the people older than me, right? You know, it's those old people who are always talking about heaven, you know? Well, you wonder why that is? This is why it is. Hardship, pain, and suffering prepare us for heaven. The older you get, the more you've experienced. The more heaven looks 
attractive. I remember when I was an unmarried 20-year-old wanting and asking God to delay, if necessary, the rapture and or my death so that I could experience marriage, so I could experience vocation, so I could experience family, friends, and all these wonderful things that there is out there, good gifts from God, and I wanted to experience them. So God, uh, could you interrupt your divine timetable to make sure that John Schubert can get married and have a job at some point? I suppose, I don't know how natural that is, but that was my experience. But it revealed a lack of understanding and serious spiritual immaturity. Romans 8.18 said, I consider, Paul said that I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. I didn't have any clue, and I still probably don't have nearly enough clue about what awaits us who follow Christ. We don't get it, which is why we continue to struggle with earthly things, with worldly things. If we understood the glory that is out there awaiting all those who faithfully follow Christ, all this would be in the rearview mirror for us. But it seems to continue to attract us, and we continue to struggle with it. Which is why Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 18. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Friends, we are, God sends us, we are given as gifts from God suffering and pain to prepare us to make heaven look attractive. Next, suffering and pain teach us about rewards. Philippians 2, 8, 9. Our example is Christ, right? And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Why did he highly exalted him? Because he rewarded him by, by foregoing through all that he did. It was a reward handed out to Christ. And we know from reading scripture, from seeing the, the stories, that God holds out these same kind of rewards for us. Rewards of blessing, rewards of peace, rewards of comfort, if you'll obey. This is, this is what is said in Hebrews 11.6. God rewards those who earnestly seek him. They teach us about rewards. They also teach us of empathy. Empathy. I think we all appreciate the ability of someone to understand what we're going through. You know, sometimes we, we lay out our concerns, our pains and sorrows, and someone gives a flippant response and we say to ourselves, they just don't understand which is probably true. They don't understand. Well, when we come across someone who does understand, it's because they've been through it, right? Exactly. Yeah, so it seems that when you encounter that someone who's walked the same path that you're struggling with, you immediately are drawn to them and appreciate them in a way that you didn't before. It could be that maybe this morning, there are someone in the room that needs to spend time with an empathetic parent who's experienced the pain of a wayward child. 
or someone here that needs to spend time with an empathetic betrayed spouse or someone who's navigated the death of a loved one or a person who has survived the, some disastrous financial decisions we all need someone like this to come into our lives from time to time don't we second corinthians 1 4 paul said god comforts us in our affliction why why does god send comfort into your life so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves received from God. You know that it's possible that what you're going through is actually more about someone you're going to minister to than about you? Is that possible? Yeah. <clears throat> Next, pain and suffering develops lasting strength which is what we want, right? We want lasting strength. Remember that God is conforming us into the image of Jesus, and so we, we know that our suffering and trials are creating that in us. We're being conformed to his image. And God's strategy is to use suffering to build strength into us, just like weightlifting builds muscle or, or how harsh elements strengthens young trees. 1 Peter 5.10 tells us, as we read this morning our confession, after we have suffered a little while, God himself will restore, confirm, and strengthen and establish you. God is in the business of strengthening his people, you. You, you weak Christian, God is working to strengthen your spiritual muscles. Puritan Thomas Manton wrote this, while all things are quiet and comfortable, we live by sense rather than faith. But the, the worth of a soldier is never known in times of peace. Consider that. William Grinnell, whom I quoted earlier, wrote of God's strategy in using suffering in the life of the Christian. Again, again from the Christian in complete armor. This is ground of consolation. This is the, this is the reason we're encouraged right here uh, to the weak Christian who disputes against the truth of his grace from the inward conflicts and fightings he hath with lusts and is ready to say like Gideon in regard of outward enemies, if God be with me, why is all this befallen me? Why do I find such strugglings in me, provoking me to sin, pulling me back from what is good? He's asking, if I'm a Christian, if I'm following Jesus and I'm trusting him, why is all this bad stuff happening to me? And Grinnell knew you would ask the question. He goes, why dost ask? Why are you asking? And the answer is soon given. Here you go, questioning friend. Because you are a wrestler, not a conqueror. You mistake the state of a Christian in this life. When one is made a Christian, he is not presently called to triumph over his slain enemies, but he's carried into the field to meet and fight them. You had this all wrong. <laughs> you weren't saved to proclaim victory, you were saved to fight. The state of grace is the commencing of war against sin, not the ending of it. So when you graduate from high school, you go through commencement services. I went to a few this year. You go to a commencement service, and you, that sounds backward, doesn't it, to those of you who know what the word commencement means. Commencement is the beginning. And yet, this is the end of high school. They're all getting their diplomas. They're all happy. We hear wonderful stories about how great they're going to be. Right? 
Commencement is the beginning, not the end of something. The beginning of the Christian life, friends, is this. War is on. It's not over, it's on. And struggles, pain, and hardship develops this spiritual strength necessary to live that joyful Christian life in the midst of it. And then they produce fresh joy. How do pain and sorrow and hardship produce fresh joy? Well, one of God's objectives in suffering is to test the authenticity of our faith, right? That's what he did with Abraham. That's what he did with many of the people of Israel, many New Testament saints, same thing. God's objective in suffering is to test the authenticity of our faith. And when we come through that suffering, and with our faith intact, our love and trust in God even more strong, it confirms the authenticity of our faith and brings joy, fresh joy. Yes, suffering and trials produce a new confidence in our tested faith. We know it's true. We know that God loves us. We know we are one of his. Why? Because you survived the last test. That's why. God's point in what he's doing is having its intended effect. And then finally, hardship, pain, and sorrow produce greater wisdom. Hardship, pain, and sorrow produce greater wisdom. Who doesn't need greater wisdom? Wisdom is a godly character trait that is highly valued by God and highly necessary for God's people. When we suffer, we need to remember to ask God to grant us wisdom through our trial and in our trial. So we want to make sure that we are exercising the wisdom of God in the trial and through it so that we can pass it on to others. This wisdom is of great worth to the body of Christ by way of encouragement and guidance for others who have found themselves in similar circumstances that you've suffered with. <clears throat> I'm gonna end with this. The church needs the wisdom of tested saints. Are you suffering? Do you know someone who's suffering? Friends, people who suffer are God's gift to his church. And so if you're suffering, if you're in the midst of pain, we need you to suffer well. We need you to finish strong. We have people that fill this church who are going through unbelievable challenges, difficulties, pain, and hardship. We need those people to be examples to us of suffering, don't we? We need you who are suffering to bear down and lean on Christ. We need an example that you live that this actually works, that God is faithful, that you can get through all the things that you face with his help. He's loving, good, and kind, and you're proof of it. We need you to finish well, suffering friend. We're going to serve you the Lord's Supper this morning. And if there's someone who suffered well that is an example to us, it's this one, Jesus Christ, isn't it? Yes. And so as you come forward and receive the elements that, that remind you of his suffering, 
his broken body, his spilt blood. Remember these things. Remember these things that, that his suffering teaches us about our salvation. His suffering teaches us about sanctification. There's, there's ramifications reflected in the elements concerning your salvation, your eternal good. There's ramifications concerning your daily struggles in the same elements. He is one faithful leader who's gone before us to suffer as an example to you and me. Consider these things as you walk down this morning to receive the elements. Maybe think about how you have performed, if you will, in the last test or trial that you've faced, and then consider Christ and his example, and thank him for his faithfulness and his love towards you. I'm going to read the words of institution from 1 Corinthians 11, and then I'll pray for the elements, and at that time I'd like the elders to, who are present to come help me uh, serve you folks, and then when I'm done praying, if you'll make your way forward, it will be our honor and privilege to serve you the elements of the body of Christ. This is from 1 Corinthians 11, verses 22 or 23 through 26. Paul said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, <clears throat> and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Pray with me. Father, we now exalt your name, give thanks to you, Father, Son, and Spirit, for the work of Christ for us, for taking on our sin, paying the penalty that we deserved, and receiving the blessing that we did not. I ask, Father, that, that if there be those in this room this morning that are suffering, that they would look to Christ's example and lean on him and trust him, that they would also look for others who have gone through those same challenges in life, in the church, in this room even, who could be a great source of encouragement. Help us to look to you, Savior, as we consider how to handle our own suffering, the things that you send our way for our good. We want to trust you. We want to have a, a well-rounded theology of suffering. We want to know for sure that we are in your hands, and we believe these things with all of our heart. Bless us now as we come forward by faith to receive from you this spiritual encouragement we're about to take. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.